A lot of things have been thrown to the stock market since October 2022, since Halloween 2022. A lot of things have been thrown to the stock market. We've had, you know, upside inflation reports. You've had weak labor reports. We've had Fed rate hikes. You've had a banking fallout, banking crisis, bank failures. We've had mixed earnings. We've had a whole bunch of geopolitical stuff. We have Russia and China trying to do their thing where they're, I don't even, new world orders coming. I don't even know. Or OPEC cutting production. So much has been thrown to the stock market since October 2022. Yet none of that stuff, even together, has killed the stock market. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, what's up today? You're really always pleased to be joined by me. I don't know if I mean every single week. I don't. I don't annoy you like maybe one or two weeks every six or seven or maybe ten or twelve. Maybe I never. I look forward to seeing you all the time. Yes, I hope everybody feels that way. I think my wife does, but maybe that's maybe you and my wife. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into all our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, friend to Luke Lango, and the proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. All right, Luke, lots to cover this week. So like last week, let's start with the macros, then drill down into the micros. Big jobs report last Friday. Job growth in the U.S. remains Mm. robust. Unemployment remains low. Are the recession risks overblown? Yeah, I mean, that jobs report would certainly imply as much, right? I mean, we added 236,000 jobs in, uh, in March versus 230,000 expected. Yeah, that's down from 326,000 in, in the prior period in February, and it's the lowest job growth since uh, late 2020, uh, I believe it was December 2020. Um, so, yes, a slowdown, but at 236,000 jobs, I mean – that's a lot of job growth in the month of March, a month when we had a banking crisis, a month when multiple banks went down, a month when treasury yields were collapsing, bank lending collapsed, uh, financial conditions got real tight. So the, for the economy to still add 236,000 jobs that month is, is pretty impressive. Now, to be sure, uh, that survey was conducted, I believe, on March 12th or 13th, so only shortly after the banking crisis. And Clearly, that report does not fully encapsulate the aftershocks of the banking crisis. So I do expect the April jobs report to be much weaker and the May jobs report to be weaker as well. But you don't just go from 236,000 jobs created in a month to job destruction like that. Uh, we did it during the pandemic. That was pretty much the only time in U.S. history that that's happened. That was the only time in U.S. history that the entire global economy shut down. So we're not going to get a repeat of that. You don't go from 236,000 jobs created in a month to zero to job destruction. You you kind of ease your way into job destruction. So the fact that that job report was so strong, 236,000 jobs, 3.5% unemployment rate, uh, that is a bullish read on the economy. And it does mean that a recession – does not appear imminent at the moment. Deep or shallow recession does not appear 
imminent at the moment. Now, at the same time in that jobs report, though, wage growth came down dramatically, right? Average hourly earnings rose 0.3% month over month. That was in line with expectations. It's a pretty low reading. Year over year, wages rose, I believe it was 4.2%, which is down from 4.6% in February. So that's 40 basis points of, of uh, deceleration in wage inflation. That's about as uh, fast as wage inflation has dropped month over month in any month during this disinflation cycle. So the disinflationary pressures on wages are now accelerating. And that means that if, you know, at this 40 basis point uh, clip, we're probably looking at two to 3% wage inflation by the summer, maybe even a little bit sooner because Again, that March report, the survey was done in the middle of March, does not fully encapsulate what happened with the banking crisis and the aftershocks of it. So I think wage inflation actually will come down from went down 40 bips in March, probably comes down 50 or 60 bips in April and maybe sustains that 50 or 60 big drop into May. So we're looking at wages 3% or lower by the summer. That That's pretty bullish. So that that jobs report to me was a Goldilocks jobs report. On one hand, it showed us that the economy is not collapsing. The labor market, the bedrock of the U.S. economy remains fairly healthy. Yet inflationary pressures, the biggest headwind to the economy, one of the stickiest parts of inflation is wages. That is collapsing faster than it ever has in this inflation cycle. So that jobs report essentially showed us immaculate disinflation without significant recession risk. Are recession risks there? Yes, they are. But that jobs report said recession risks are lower than what a lot of people thought. And disinflation, the disinflation wave is stronger than a lot of people thought. So that's very bullish. That's Goldilocks. And again, that is the economy I think we are in right now. The economic trend that I think we are embracing right now is this Goldilocks slowdown. Things are slowing enough to suppress inflationary pressures, pressures, but not slowing enough to kill the U.S. economy because the economy is a lot stickier and stronger than this bout of inflation. So we are threading the needle perfectly right now with the slowdown that can kill inflation, but not the economy. And it's all going to come down to the Fed. We are in this sweet spot right now. If the Fed chooses to pause in this sweet spot while we remain in this sweet spot, in this window, then the economy will get guided to a soft landing. We will skirt a major recession. Inflation will come down and stocks will have a massive second half rally. If the Fed does not pause in the sweet spot, misses this window of opportunity and waits until July or later in the year to pause, then we could miss it and boom, that's how we get the recession. So right now we're in this sweet spot and it comes down to what is the Fed going to do? Are they going to pivot while we remain in the sweet spot? Or are they going to wait until they overdo it and they're not going to pivot in the sweet spot? That's that. That's the million dollar, trillion dollar question, if you will, for the stock markets right now. But yes, with respect to the jobs report, it confirmed that we are in this sweet spot right now. And that is bullish for equities. And ever since that jobs report was released, we have seen stocks trend higher. We have seen growth stocks trend higher. We have seen yields start to stabilize in this 3.3, 3.4% on the 10-year range. And that's, that's pretty bullish. We don't want collapsing yields because that symbolizes economic a massive economic fear. You don't want rising yields because that symbolizes um, 
runaway inflationary pressures. If yields can stabilize in a 2% to 3.5% range, if they can stabilize in that range, that's a very, it's a sweet spot again for the economy. So overall, and I like the reaction I'm seeing from, from the markets in response to the jobs report. Overall, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on last week's jobs report because it did confirm that we're in this sweet spot for the economy. But I do want to emphasize that the Fed does have to pause in this sweet spot because leading indicators of labor market health are weakening dramatically. Challenger job cuts are soaring right now. Those tend to lead unemployment rates by three to six months. So at the current pace of the U.S. economy, if that pace persists, the unemployment rate will soar over the next three to six months. Um, you're seeing uh, layoff announcements uh, tracked by a, a bunch of different firms are soaring as well. Um, you're seeing uh, employment measures and small business uh, surveys and the ISM surveys. Those are starting to plunge as well. Uh, the, today, actually, the, the small business confidence survey just came out and it showed that um, hiring intentions for the next six months fell to their lowest since May 2020. So right out of the pandemic. Um, so we're seeing leading indicators of the labor market point significantly downward. Meaning, again, we're in the sweet spot, but we won't be here for long, so the Fed has to capitalize on that opportunity. But overall, again, for right now, bullish on, on that jobs report because it confirms we are in that sweet spot. Okay. Uh, sticking with some of the macros, we're getting a big CPI print tomorrow. What's your early read on that? Right. Yeah, so I think it's going to be really, 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 really soft. Um, again, the, the inflationary pressures in the U.S. economy are subsiding significantly right now. You can look at every single leading indicator of inflation. Again, all the ISM services surveys, those showed price pressures significantly abating in March. The ISM manufacturing surveys showed uh, inflationary pressures, price pressures significantly abating in March. The um, the Dallas Fed, New York Fed, Kansas City Fed, Philly Fed, all those district feds, their services and manufacturing surveys all show price pressures significantly abating in March. Um, trueflation data significantly declined in March. Uh, oil prices were under pressure in March. Natural gas prices plunged basically to all-time lows in March, near all-time lows in March. Commodity prices broadly fell pretty significantly in March. You had the banking crisis in March. Bank lending volumes in the last two weeks of the month collapsed by the most they have on record. Bank lending volumes fell $105 billion. Uh, U.S. bank lending volume fell $105 billion in the final two weeks of March. That's the biggest two-week drop ever, bigger than at any point during COVID, bigger than at any point during the great financial crisis, bigger than at any point during the, the dot-com crash, than at any point during the 90s, 80s, 70s. It's, it's the biggest drop ever. So with that bank lending collapsing, that's less firepower for consumer spending and enterprise spending. So Every single leading indicator of inflation uh, rolled over significantly in March. Tomorrow is the March CPI report. I think that's going to be really, really, really weak. What we have to be worried about is not the March CPI report. What we have to be worried about is the April CPI report because trueflation data has actually gone up in April. It's been on a steady decline 7%, 6%, 5%, 4% uh, for the past several months. Now, all of a sudden, in April, it's kind of stabilized and gone up a little bit. The Cleveland uh, Fed, they're now casting tool calls for CPI to rise year over year. Um, 
uh, sequentially in, in April, from March to April. Um, the oil prices, as we all know, have jumped from they were at a low of 65 to they've been stabilizing around 80. That's happened in April. So there are certainly some some semblance of reinflationary pressures in the month of April, though I think those reinflationary pressures will quickly get wiped out because the bank lending volume collapsed in the last two weeks of March. That just means to me that spending is really going to dry up here in April. And I think the labor market is going to start to weaken pretty dramatically. People are going to start really worrying about job security and consumer sentiments going to take a little bit of a hit. And as a result of that, you're going to get demand destruction in April. So the way I look at things is there's two legs to the disinflation wave. The first leg was supply chain normalization. Basically, supply chains got all out of whack during the COVID pandemic. That caused supply of goods and services to be very, very, very low. And that was added to the inflationary effects. The first wave of disinflation was powered by those supply chain shortages and breaks normalizing, becoming fixed. That's now fully happened. The New York Fed's global supply chain pressure index is not just back to pre-pandemic levels, but at its lowest level in several, several years. So we're talking supply chains are completely back to normal entirely. That powered the first wave of disinflation, and that allowed us to get disinflation without any real demand destruction. Now I think we're entering the demand destruction part of the disinflation wave. We're going to start seeing you know, bank lending has contracted significantly. That's less consumer and enterprise spending firepower. We're going to start seeing the labor market weaken. We're going to start seeing people worry about their jobs. That's going to have an effect on them on them spending. So you're going to start to see demand destruction really come into, into the fold in April, I believe. And that's going to allow April inflation numbers to be as weak as March inflation numbers when all is said and done. So overall, I think tomorrow's CPI report is going to be very, very, very soft and likely spark a pretty strong stock market rally uh, for the month of April. But I'm a little bit worried about the April report coming out in May, but I do think that that report will ultimately be very weak because we're going to see further demand destruction here in April as a result of all the things that happened in March related to the banking crisis. So net net bullish on the path of inflation going forward. It's low. Okay. Uh, speaking of the banking crisis, I want to get a quick update there. Um, it kind of feels like things have stabilized. Um, have they? Right. Right. Yeah, it does. It certainly does feel that way. There, There's a lot of talk from uh, major banking CEOs, Jamie Dimon being one of them, that things are are going to are not stabilized and that there's going to be a lot more uh, failures and fallout and all that stuff. But I don't I don't really think so. I think that it appears that the the banking crisis is mostly uh, at least the immediate effects are mostly over. The immediate effects being bankruptcies, insolvencies, bank failures, bank runs. I think those things are pretty much over. Maybe we're in the eighth or ninth inning of that ball game. But now we move into the next ball game, which are the aftershocks of the banking crisis. And that is bank lending collapsing. That is banks upping their, their lending standards. That is financial conditions getting tighter. That's where we are right now. We're in the first inning of that ball game. So yes, the banking crisis has stabilized, but the aftershocks of it, the, the, the effects of it will be felt for the next six months via lower bank 
bank lending, harder financing, tougher financing, and therefore lower spending and lower capital moving around the market, lower velocity funds in the market. And so I think that is going to really have a negative impact on inflation or positive if you're bullish, a positive impact on inflation so that inflation continues to move lower. But yeah, I do think the banking crisis for the most part has stabilized with probably some opportunities in the regional bank stocks as we talked about on this podcast. All regional bank stocks pretty much got valued like they were going out of business. Most of them will not go out of business. There's going to be a big rebound there, just a matter of when. I think it's a good time if you're, you got a medium term, you know, three to six month outlook to be dip buying a lot of those bank stocks. All right. Uh, last macro topic, the Fed. We have a big meeting in early May, another big one in the middle of June. The pause that you keep talking about, when is it coming? Yep. Yeah, so I'm going to go with June. I think June's the most likely outcome just based on Fed rhetoric over the past few weeks. Based on, like I said, April inflationary pressures have uh, kind of ticked up slightly over the past few few weeks uh, based on the OPEC production cut. I think that the fact and the, the strong uh, jobs market report, the factors influencing the Fed have shifted ever so slightly in a manner that supports one more rate hike, but only one more rate hike. Uh, and so I think that they do go 25 basis points in May to kind of have the final nail in the coffin for inflation, if you will. And then they pause in June. And I, I think that the Fed or the market starting to sniff that out, starting to understand that is the path of monetary policy going forward. That's what the futures market is pretty solidly pricing in. If you look at the way stocks are reacting, it, it, they're starting to act like that. So they're they're moving higher, but not soaring higher. They're grinding higher, as I've been telling our subscribers. And so I think we continue to grind higher until that pause comes. But I think that pause does come in in June. What's the real question is well, there's two real questions is one, what's their rhetoric going to sound like after the main meeting? So let's just go ahead and assume they hike 25 basis points in May. Uh, what's the rhetoric going to be like? Are they going to keep that language they had from the last meeting where it's maybe on or they're going to drop the ongoing rate increases and keep the maybe further tightening? They're not going to say whether or not another rate hikes down the pike. That's a real question mark is what is their rhetoric going to look like around that meeting? So I think it's almost a done deal, pretty much a done deal. They're going to go 25. So what's their rhetoric going to look like? Then let's say they pause in June. The next question becomes, OK, how long are they going to stay on pause? Right, because on average, the median, the average time between the final rate hike in a cycle and the first rate cut in a cycle is about six weeks. That's nothing. That's literally nothing. So. If you take that average time frame, then they stop in June and they start cutting by August. That would be a pretty quick turnaround. Um, and the futures market is pricing in a cut by July. So they actually kind of see that timeline playing out. Well, the Fed stay on pause is higher for longer. The actual way things are going to play out. Are they going to get to five, five point two, five, five and a half and keep them there for a year or two? Or are they going to get there and then immediately come back down in July, August and throughout the rest of the year? I'm in the camp that they're going to actually be able to stay there because I don't think the economy is in that bad a shape. So I think they're going to be able to stay on pause for for a while and not have to cut. I mean, I don't know if that's 12 months, six months, it's going to depend on the data. But the futures market is pricing in pretty steep rate cuts into the end of the year. So I'm at a disagreement with Mr. Market there, and I may end up being wrong. I don't like finding myself <laughs> on the wrong side of Mr. Market. But um, I do think that the economy is resilient enough right now to for the Fed to get 
rates to 5.25, five and a half, and stay there. Just stay there. That's bullish for stocks if that happens because Fed pauses systematically spark stock market rallies. Fed cuts have a very mixed history. Sometimes Fed cuts spark rallies. Sometimes they spark sell-offs. It's not very clear. It all depends on the surrounding circumstances. But what doesn't depend on the surrounding circumstances are Fed pauses. Fed pauses always cause stock market rallies. When the Fed goes from hiking rates and they stop hiking rates, that always leads to stock market strength. Then once they start cutting, sometimes stocks go further up. Sometimes they start going down. Sometimes they crash. It's very History is mixed on that data. So I think it would be more bullish for stocks if the Fed is able to get to 5.25, 5.5, stay there for at least three, four, five, six months, and then start cutting. That, to me, would be representative of an economy that is not crashing, yet where inflation is falling quickly enough for the Fed to eventually, within three, four, six months, cut rates. If the Fed has to immediately go into rate cutting in July or August, that means something's wrong in the economy. And that means earnings estimates are going to have to come down. And that'll probably create a drag on stocks. It eventually will create a big boom. But I think that if the Fed does have to immediately cut, you're going to get another leg lower before you get, get a big rally. But my base case outlook is for rate hike in, March, in May, sorry, pause in June, stay on pause until the end of the year, and then start cutting in 24. And I, as inflation really comes down to 2% and the economy can, you know, we can uh go lower with rates. So not because of recession, but because inflation is mm. gone. So if we do get that, I think we grind higher into May. I think we grind higher slash rally a little bit more significantly into June. Then we soar June into the end of the year. And then we kind of wait and see what the Fed's going to do. And then we rally big into 2024 as that starts a new kind of economic expansion cycle. That's my base case outlook for the next 12 months you know, plus. Obviously, a lot of things can happen. A lot of things can deviate from that. But, you know, based on the data that's incoming right now, to me, that path seems uh, like the most likely by by a wide margin. All right. Um, actually, Luke, I have one more macro topic that I'd like to discuss, and that's right. earnings season. Uh, we're actually about to okay. head into the first quarter of earnings season. Um, mm -hmm. What are you expecting out of the numbers for this past quarter? Yeah, so I think earnings are going to be pretty good, much better than expected, and mostly because of cost cutting that I think a lot of companies have uh, done extensive cost cutting over the past three months, the extensive cost cutting to start the year. I mean, you have to consider, just from a business perspective, you rethink your spend, you rethink your budget, you redo your budget to the beginning of every year, right? That's, that's kind of like a, a clean slate point. And so we came into 2023 from an economic perspective, from a business perspective, it wasn't great, right? It wasn't great. People were feeling pretty bad about things. That sentiment was probably wide, widely shared among C-suites, among executives. And so they came into 2023 and they were like, we need to really, we need to clean up. We need to stop spending so much on this. We need to cut back on that. We need to, you know, let go of personnel here. We've seen a bunch of announcements going on, but the only ones that get any headline attention are the, uh, are, are the big tech announcements, right? Spotify does this, Amazon does this, Microsoft does this, Walmart does that. So the big companies. There's been a lot of firing going on beneath that too. So and a lot of cost cutting, cost cutting going on beneath that, beneath the headline level as well. So I think that earnings are actually going to surprise at the 
upside uh, this quarter because of those cost-cutting measures. I think that there's a lot of uh, optimism about revenues holding steady and earnings not being so strong because margins are contracting. I don't buy the whole profit margin contraction in 2023 narrative. I think profit margins are going to expand meaningfully in 2023 because, one, inflationary pressures are coming down significantly. So the price of goods is starting to stabilize in a manner that's going to help these guys really um, – uh, benefit from lower lower cost of goods sold, cost of goods produced, cost of services rendered, stuff like that. Then at the same time, they're going to be cost cutting uh, personnel, marketing, um, R&D, SG&A, that stuff. So they're going to get OPEX leverage, positive OPEX leverage. And that's going to lead to, in my opinion, pretty robust operating profit margin expansion in 2023. So I'm actually more worried about revenues in 2023 than I am profit margins. But still, I think revenues will be fine. But for that reason, I do think this quarter's earnings season is going to be pretty strong. They're going to get a lot of upside surprises on earnings. Stocks can react positive, positively to that because, again, there's this expectation that profit margins are going to contract. Investors are going to be pleasantly surprised by the level of profit margin expansion in the quarter as a result of cost-cutting measures, the success of those cost-cutting measures. And the resiliency of revenues, because I think a common theme here is that there's this um, uh, idea that margins and revenues kind of move hand in hand because once companies are starting to cut costs, right, then they are, yes, going to improve their OPEX space. They're going to, you know, uh, make that smaller. But once you fire somebody, that's, you know, revenue production that goes out the door. Or once you get rid of some marketing spend, that's revenue production that goes out the door, money that could have been used to drive more revenue. So a lot of times margins move down with revenues. But I think that's not going to be the case in 2023. I think revenues will stay resilient with profit margin expansion um, because you're going to see that companies just overhired in the pandemic. Everybody got greedy during the pandemic, after the pandemic, and everybody started hiring left and right, spending left and right, marketing this, you know, researching that. They had all these projects going on, all this spending happening because money was everywhere, money was free, and money was flowing. That money necessarily, those investments weren't necessarily driving revenues. They were just spending to spend. They weren't spending to grow. And so I think that now companies are looking at their spend and realizing that was the case and they're cutting all of these pet projects or pet spending, pet marketing initiatives, and they're doing so without hampering revenues because the things they're cutting weren't ever really driving revenues in the first place. So companies are just getting more efficient. They're getting leaner, and I don't think it's going to really impact revenues because the things that they're cutting are fat, essentially. They're fat. And so I, I like the, the financial shape that companies are in going into this earnings season and for all of 2023. So I'm expecting upside surprises on earnings in the first quarter, and I'm expecting strong guides for the rest of the year because companies are going to be like, you know what? We did all this cost cutting. Margins are going to improve by a bunch, and revenues are going to stay pretty good too. And that is a good enough commentary to send stocks higher. My two cents. Okay. Um, let's move into some sector analysis now, uh, starting with the housing market. Your favorite leading indicator of housing market activity, Redfin's Home Buyer Demand mm -hmm. Index, continues to climb mm -hmm. strongly. So is it still up, up and away for the housing market in 2023? Yeah, so the, the Redfin Home Buyer uh, Demand Index does continue to climb. It's at its highest levels now since September 2020. 
um, that has coincided with mortgage rates moving lower and lower and lower and lower. I've always said that there is a whole generation of home buyers out there, prospective home buyers out there that are just sitting on the sidelines waiting for mortgage rates to move lower. Once those move lower, every tick lower, it's going to energize another segment of buyers to come back into the market. Another tick lower, energize another segment. Another tick lower, energize another segment. And we're seeing that. So as these mortgage rates start to move lower, we're energizing more and more segments of the sideline home buying demand. That's coming into a market that continues to have very low supply uh, on the housing side, right? I think months uh, months supply housing inventory is about 2.8 months, 2.6 months below three months right now. That's ridiculously low. That means it would only take it would take less than three months at the current buying pace to sell all the inventory in the market. That's very, 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 very low. So you have low inventory and you have a lot of demand, and that demand is being re-energized by lower mortgage rates. That to me is a recipe for a continued housing market rebound because one, because who's gonna benefit from this? One, people that are buying and selling homes, because I think home prices are now going to stabilize and move higher in 2023. Uh, two, home builders, because once that demand comes back into the fold and you have low inventory, well, that obviously means we need to make more inventory. So I think home builders are going to get a bunch of projects. We're going to get a lot of flow of deal, a lot of deal flow here over the next 6, 12, 18 months with, with home builders. So I think home builder stocks rise pretty strongly. They've been rising pretty strongly. They continue to rise pretty strongly. Uh, a firm like Zillow, I think, is going to benefit because uh, you're going to get – and Redfin, because you're going to get a bunch of interest in, in home buying. All these sideline home buyers are going to get re-energized. They're back on Zillow. They're back on Redfin. They're actively looking. They're reaching out for agents. A firm like Compass is going to benefit because I think there's going to be more activity. The agents are going to start getting more and more deals. The the bidding wars are going to start to be pretty, uh, a little bit more intense for, for, for homes. And you're going to start seeing sales prices that, that are much more favorable for firms like that. So I think across the housing industry, there's a lot of ways to play it through the value chain. But I think that no matter which way you decide, I think it's a rising tides. It's going to lift all boats situation. I do believe the housing market is in the first or second inning of a pretty long and significant comeback because, I mean, simple supply demand fundamentals, folks. There aren't a lot of homes for sale in the U.S. and there are a lot of people that need to home, need to buy a home, want to buy a home, uh, are looking to buy a home, have the the funds to buy a home. So you put that with low supply, and you, you get a housing market that remains pretty strong. I mean, the resilience of the housing market of the past 12 months has been pretty impressive, right? People kept saying housing market crash, housing market crash, housing market crash. Prices haven't really come down that much. They've come down a little bit. Yes, they have. They have come down. And then the wild growth that we saw in 2020 and 2021 is definitely over. But home prices themselves have not come down a whole lot. Home sales have, but home prices have not. So the resiliency at home prices after the parabolic growth we saw in 2020 and 2021 is pretty darn impressive, especially against the backdrop of mortgage rates that spiked like crazy. I have a saying in life, not me, there is a saying in life, that which doesn't kill you 
makes you stronger. And I've used that to apply, and apply it to the stock market. A lot of things have been thrown to the stock market since October 2022, since Halloween 2022. A lot of things have been thrown to the stock market. We've had you know upside inflation reports. You've had weak labor reports. We've had Fed rate hikes. You've had a banking fallout, banking crisis, bank failures. We've had mixed earnings. We've had a whole bunch of geopolitical stuff. We have Russia and China trying to do their thing where they're, I don't even, New World Order's coming. I don't even know. Right? OPEC cutting production. So much has been thrown to the stock market since October 2022. Yet none of that stuff, even together, has killed the stock market. It has done nothing but grind higher in November, grind higher in December, grind higher in January, grind higher in February, grind higher in March, and keep grinding higher in April. That is six months of grinding higher in the face of a bunch of headwinds. Those things didn't kill the stock market. If they didn't kill it, they only made it stronger. Same thing with the housing market. You've had a bunch of headwinds over the past you know, year and a half in the housing market. None of them have really killed the housing market. None of them have caused prices to collapse significantly. That which didn't kill the housing market, all those things didn't kill the housing market. That shows you how strong the housing market really is and why it is primed for a rebound on the back of lower mortgage rates in 2023. So yes, I remain very constructive on housing stocks, home builder stocks, housing technology stocks, all stocks across the housing market value chain. I think they are all due for some pretty significant upside over the next 12 months. Okay. Uh, next sector, electric vehicles. Tesla is back at it with the price cuts. Uh, what do you make of the price erosion in the EV industry right now, and how does that impact EV stocks? Right, right. So, um, yeah, Tesla is back at it with the price cuts. And I think what's really interesting is if you look at the Tesla delivery report uh, from the fourth quarter, or for, sorry, from the first quarter of 2023. For a while now, for several years, Tesla has been a growth story driven by the three and the Y. Mostly the three, but the three and the Y. It has not been a story driven by the S and the X, with the difference, of course, being the three and Y are forty, fifty thousand dollar cars and the S and the X are hundred thousand dollar plus cars. So this has been a story driven by lower, more affordable priced electric vehicles, not one driven by premium priced electric vehicles. That became really accentuated in the first quarter of this year. The S and X in the first quarter of 2023 delivery volume, that was the smallest percent of the pie that it's been as far back as I can remember. The three and the Y were the biggest part of the pie as far back as I can remember. So the three and the Y are more so than ever overwhelmingly driving the growth narrative at Tesla. The S and the X are pretty much complete afterthoughts now. Tesla recognizes that. So they're executing the strategy shift. They're essentially saying we've saturated the premium market. Everybody who wants a $100,000 Tesla has a $100,000 Tesla. We don't need to go after those people anymore. We're going to just kind of keep that there. We're going to really shift our strategy and put all our focus on attracting the people who want a $40,000 electric vehicle or a $30,000 electric vehicle or a $50,000 electric vehicle. We're going to go after those people and we're going to keep cutting prices until we dominate the affordable side of the electric vehicle market. So that's their strategy shift right now. I think it's a good strategy shift because that's where the volumes are. More people... 
a heck of a lot more people can afford a $20,000, $30,000 Tesla than a $100,000 Tesla. So they're trying to go after all those volumes. That's a smart move by Tesla, absolutely. But it also creates a massive opportunity for companies like Lucid and Rivian because they're still selling 70, 80, 90, $100,000 electric vehicles and they have no plans of switching away from that at any point soon. Meanwhile, in going after the $30,000, $40,000 market, Tesla is cannibalizing their demand in the premium sector because ostensibly, let's you know, be honest here, a Tesla Model S from 15 miles, or sorry, 15 <laughs> miles from, uh, you know, 15 feet away looks like a Model 3 from 15 feet away. And the Model Y kind of looks like the Model X from 15 feet away. So, uh, part of the reason you buy a six-figure electric vehicle is because you stand out and it's a status thing, right? Um, if the if Tesla sells more and more threes and Ys that look like Ss and Xs, then the prospective uh, demand pool for Ss and Xs, I think, gets diminished because the brand equity is getting diminished. Uh that means all those people are going to start looking into other electric vehicles, premium electric vehicles to buy, premium electric vehicles that have not diminished their brand equity yet. That is Rivian. That is Lucid. It's mostly Lucid, but it's also Rivian looking at the seven-seater market. So I think that Tesla's strategy shift is a good thing for Tesla, but also a good thing for Rivian and Lucid because it creates an opportunity for them to really dominate the premium end of the electric vehicle market. Therefore, I think that it is a good time to get bullish on all those EV stocks, Tesla, Lucid, Rivian. Also, because the EPA, so the New York Times came out with a report over the weekend that the EPA is going to announce new tailpipe uh, emission regulations on Wednesday in Detroit, so tomorrow in Detroit, and that those regulations are meant to meaningfully accelerate the EV revolution to a point where around 60% of all new cars sold in the U.S. will be electric by 2030. Remember, Biden recently said, President Biden recently said that he wants 50%, so that's where the market's at. The market is kind of pricing at 50% EV penetration by 2030. If these new tailpipe regulations do come into effect and do spark it to 60% growth and estimates move meaningfully higher, that is a catalyst for EV stocks to move higher as well. So I think things are shaving up nicely for a good rebound in electric vehicle stocks. I think it is a good time to start getting aggressive on, on the Rivians of the world, on the Fiskers of the world, on the uh, Lucids of the world, and even Tesla. I think Tesla is due for a nice little rebound here as well. Okay. Uh, one industry I want to spend a bit more time on this week is automation. Uh, Walmart just released a press release last week saying that upwards of 50% of their stores and fulfillment centers will be automated by 2030. One of your favorite automation right. stocks, we talked about it last week, Symbotic, has a huge contract to automate all of Walmart's fulfillment centers. And perhaps uncoincidentally, Symbotic stock is up 190% since November and has been soaring in 2020. What's going on here? And is this the start of the automation revolution? Yeah, so here's Symbotic. Yeah, it's up to 27.31 right now. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you guys can see this chart at all, but look at the six-month chart. I mean, it's just kind of boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
What's what's it? Yeah, Symbotic's been been a massive winner. Um, quick recap there: Symbotic is a company that does warehouse automation technologies. They've created a full suite of robotic solutions to automate end to end all operations in a fulfillment center, a warehouse, distribution center, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, that system includes okay, so an inbound parcel comes into the f- fulfillment center. There's two giant robotic arms that take that parcel off and put it in the off the uh, the van or the truck or whatever and put it. Uh, in the fulfillment center, uh, deconstructs that parcel and individual goods for those individual goods on little mini electric vehicles that then zoom around this fulfillment center and then they find their their place in the storage and then they kind of have a detached not a detachable but a uh, uh, a thing you can push higher, so then the the package goes up, finds its place in, in the shelving, you know, level one, level three, level five, level seven, level eight, whatever it is, goes in there, boom, conveyor belt, pushes it in to where it's supposed to be stored. Then, you know, we got to construct the outbound parcel at some point, you know, San Diego, Walmart needs X, Y, and Z. These little robots go out, they find what it needs, X, Y, and Z, they fetch it, go up, fetch it, conveyor belt, puts it on, goes on its electric vehicle goes to the outbound parcel uh, construction area, two giant robotic arms, put together this outbound parcel, tape it up, boom, put it on the truck, off you go to Walmart San Diego. So that's what uh, Symbotic has built. It's a really advanced robotic solution. It's powered by AI. It's got all the right buzz terms, but it works. It's it's really legit. <coughs> and their big thing is they, they signed the deal with Walmart. The thing to note here is that it must be working really, really well because 2021 Walmart said, okay, we're going to automate, uh, you know, a couple of our distribution centers with this symbolic technology. And they started to roll out a couple months later, 2022 Walmart says, you know what? This is going so well. These first few rollouts, we're going to automate all of our warehouses this way. Like why not? It's, I mean, it's, that's, that's do it. Okay, so that happened in 2022. Year later, you know what? This is actually going so well that we're going to start, you know, the reason we're doing this is to realize cost improvements, cost efficiencies. So we don't need all these labor costs anymore. So we're going to start letting go of people in these fulfillment centers, working in these fulfillment centers. So that's what they did. They started firing people. They, that same week that they – so they fired 2,000 people from uh, their fulfillment center in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. That's also where Symbotic is opening a 1.5 million square foot automated fulfillment center for Walmart this year. I don't know if it's already open or if it's opening very soon, but it's it's slated to open in early 2023. They just fired 2,000 people from the fulfillment center in that same area. And then that same week, they issued a press release saying – 55% of all goods that we process are going to move through automated fulfillment centers by 2030. Connect the dots here and it increasingly appears that Walmart is blown away by the efficiency improvements they are seeing through Symbotics technology. Blown away by it, right? I mean, they went from let's try this out at a few fulfillment centers to let's do this at all our fulfillment centers to this is going so well. We can now actually start firing people and we can issue a big press release saying 55% of all our goods are going to move to fulfillment centers like this within a few years. I mean, that, that's a rapid evolution and a significant evolution over 24 months. And again, it underscores that symbiotic, that technology is working wonders for Walmart. Now, here's what I think happens with relation to the symbiotic uh, 
story. I think Walmart buys them out. Walmart understands that fulfillment center automation is a competitive advantage. They don't want other people using symbiotic technology. They don't want Target tapping that. They don't want Dollar Tree tapping that. They don't want Family Dollar tapping that. They don't want anybody else tapping that. They want it on their own. (laughs) Amazon has its own. Amazon's automation, their warehouse automation is in-house. It's their own. It's proprietary, which they got through an acquisition. Kiva Robotics way back in, I don't know, 2011 or something. Amazon acquired its way into its proprietary warehouse automation solution. Why wouldn't Walmart do the same? You know, they know that this technology is working. Symbotic's great. Symbotic has the power to go and say, hey, Target, look what we're doing with Walmart. Pretty cool stuff. You want in? They have the power to go to the dollar stores and be like, hey, look what we're doing with Walmart. Pretty cool stuff. You want in? Walmart doesn't want them to do that. So I think Walmart is actually going to make a play for Symbotic. I think we're going to get an outright acquisition of Symbotic like Amazon acquired Kiva Robotics back in 2011. They're going to pay a huge premium because they know the cost of pitches and lock through it. And I think that's partially why the stock is absolutely soaring because the recent developments in the industry, the layoffs, the press release, the launching of the big 1.5 million square foot um, automation center in Dallas-Fort Worth area, all that tells investors, one – Things are going really well. And two, they might be going so well that Walmart's going to make a play here. So I think the way this story ends with Symbotic is an outright acquisition by Walmart, which I wouldn't want to see as a Symbotic investor because I think Symbotic stock has a lot more value as a standalone company providing um, the solutions to all these other retailers like Target and the dollar stores. But, you know, if they get acquired at $40, $50 a share, I'll I'll take that as well. So, um, I, I think that that's how the symbolic story ends. Now, as far as is this the beginning of a broader automation revolution? Yes. This is the first wave of AI. We've talked about this so many times on this podcast. The first wave of AI is going to be robotic automation of tasks that humans repeatedly do through patterns that we can almost do them kind of sleepwalking through them, right? This includes fulfillment center stuff, stocking of, of, of packages, the shelving of packages, the deconstruction of parcels, the, the reconstruction of parcels. That, that, people can sleepwalk through a lot of that, right? It, it does create a lot, of, a lot of physical labor there. But in terms of like mental uh, exercising, it, it, it's kind of a sleepwalk. Flipping burgers, miso robotics, making fries, that's, that's stuff that can be automated, low-level automation. Mowing grass, I'm seeing it in some of my the, the venture investments I'm covering. The, the, a company called Graze, they do a robotic lawnmower. That, that's out and about in the world. That's happening. Um, robotic pizzerias, that, that's happening now. Um, we're seeing automation in those tasks. That is the first wave of the AI revolution, and it's happening right now. Now, so I would be full bore bullish on AI automation stocks because I think that revolution is already here and it's going to accelerate over the next several years. Symbotic is is the best play in my opinion, but there are also other plays in the industry that that are worth considering. And, and the chips and uh, chips, the picks and shovels <laughs> play here, of course, is Nvidia, right? It's it's the chip, the chip makers. Um, these solutions, these robotic solutions, require really good chips. So NVIDIA, that's why NVIDIA stocks have been catching a bit recently too. So I think that, yes, what's happening with Symbotic and Walmart is a model of the future. 
And that future is one where robots automate a ton of tasks that are kind of mindless tasks. And I think that happens on a uh, physical labor front first and then kind of gets into the the office work, the office work, so to speak, lawyer tasks, uh, filing of things. I think that that happens next. But I think what's happening right now is a sort of I don't want to say blue collar automation, but it kind of is a blue collar automation where jobs like cooks and fulfillment center. And then I think, you know, drivers, right. We're trying to get a lot of automated delivery things going on. I think that's, that's part of this whole revolution. So I'm really bullish on everything going on there. And I really think that Symbotic and Walmart are showing us the future and you're going to want to invest alongside that future. Okay. Um, last but not least, let's talk cryptos. Bitcoin just soared above $30,000. <clears> big level. You've been bullish on 2023 as the start of the new boom cycle for cryptos. Are you still bullish? Uh, yes, 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 and yes. Uh, the thesis for me on cryptos coming in 2023 had nothing. I don't want to. Had nothing to do with the blockchain. Had nothing to do with cryptos being the future. Had nothing to do with any of that stuff. I don't. I don't even want to talk about. That. I don't want to argue that because that's a debate that could go on forever and ever 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 and ever. And it's going to be tough to convince one person on one side of the aisle of somebody of somebody's opinion on the other side of the aisle. They're going to stay on their side of the aisle. It's kind of like politics. All right. So crypto is that. Don't want to talk about that. The crypto bull thesis for me coming in 2023 was that cryptos have a freaking pattern. They have a pattern. And the pattern is they boom and then they bust for about a year or so, more specifically around 16 months. They drop about 80% during those 16 months. Bitcoin drops about 80% during those 16 months. Then it bottoms around 12 to 16 months before a Bitcoin halving event. And then it retakes about 50% of its losses in those 12 to 16 months before the halving event. And then it soars to new highs in the 12 months after the halving event. It does this. Every single time it did it in 2011, 2012, it did it in the next halving, it did it in the halving after that. And now we're coming into the fourth halving cycle. The fourth halving is going to happen in April 2024. That's the prediction. April 2024 is when this fourth halving is going to happen. We're in April 2023. We're 12 months before it. We're in that 12 to 16 month window before it. That's when cryptos bottom in this cycle. That's when cryptos start to retake 50% of their losses. We're doing that. We're History is just repeating. The pattern's repeating. So forget everything else. Forget blockchain is the future. Forget that cryptos are going to reshape everything. I, I don't. It doesn't matter what you believe about those things. What matters is that cryptos are a risk on asset that have a pattern that they repeat every four years. And right now we're in the part of the pattern where the crypto boom cycle, the fourth crypto boom cycle is in its second or third inning. So yes, we've gone from 16 to 30. We're up 85% year to date. We've smashed above all the moving averages. We're looking very strong and I think this continues. Next stop, 35, then 40. I think we get to 40, 45 before the halving. And then after the halving and the 12 months after, 2024, 2025, that's when we shoot up to 100K on Bitcoin. So I was pounding the table on Bitcoin in late 2022, telling my subscribers, hey, you want to get into Bitcoin now. The, the next boom cycle is about to start. You need to buy. You need to buy below 20 is a fantastic opportunity. And I'm 
not pounding the table as much. If I was pounding the table 10 out of 10 back then, now I'm 9 out of 10, but I'm still 9 out of 10 because I do think this is, again, just the second inning of a 24-month boom cycle. And so you're going to want to continue to dip by cryptos over the next 12 to 24 months. Okay. Uh, well, that covers all of our topics, uh, but we have a ton of fan questions this week. And starting with cool. uh, two that kind of go together. Hi, Luke. Lots of talk currently about the China-Brazil deal to ditch dollars. Some outlets saying that this is the beginning of the death of the U.S. dollar and ultimately run away inflation in the U.S. Would love to hear your thoughts on any of this. From And that's from Fox Mega. And similarly from Ken uh Kiati, I think I'm pronouncing that right. What are your thoughts of the effects of the BRICS movement to devalue the dollar? Right. So you told me about this question beforehand. So I pull up a little chart over here. Okay. So BRICS, China, India, Brazil, Russia. China is a $12 trillion economy. India is a $2 trillion economy, so 14. Brazil's two, so 16. Russia's one, so 17. Those four countries have a combined global GDP of $17 trillion. Want to know what the United States GDP is? $20 trillion. So the US alone is a larger economy then Brazil, Russia, India, and China put together. Japan, not joining that movement, $5 trillion. That's 25 with the U.S. Germany, not joining that movement. That's $4 trillion. That's 29 with the, with the U.S. and Japan. U.K., $3 trillion, not joining that movement, up to 32. France, $3 trillion, not joining that movement, up to 35. Italy, two, not joining that movement, up to 37. Canada, two, not joining the movement, up to 39. So, and I can go on and on and on. Australia, not joining it. Spain, not joining it. Mexico, not joining it. Indonesia, you know, they're not joining it, not joining it, not joining it. La, 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 la. Add it all up and you're looking at $50, $60 trillion. What's bigger, 17 or 16? Sorry, that's my dog, guys. Daisy. <laughs> but what's what, what's bigger, Seven, 17 or 60? Se, 17 or 60? Mm-hmm. 60 mm-hmm. is a significantly larger money or larger number than, than 17. And as a result, I do not think that you need to worry about this BRICS movement, devaluing the dollar, all that crap. I mean, the value of a currency is tied to the value of the economy. The U.S. economy is the largest, strongest economy on the planet. It is proving to be one of the more resilient economies in this downturn. It is having the best growth projections over the next several years. And when you talk about the the economies that are better putting this together, uh, Brazil, not so hot. Russia, kind of kind of in, in the in the tanker right now. China, massive problem city over there. I mean Population growth has been the the engine of that economy, and it's going down, 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 down. So not only is one side of the equation significantly larger than the other side of the equation, but the side that is larger has much better growth prospects than the side that is smaller, meaning this imbalance is going to get more significant in favor of the larger number over the next several years. Do not worry about the devaluing of the U.S. dollar 
Do not worry about the BRICS movement. The U.S. economy is the strongest, most durable, most resilient economy in the world, alongside all of Europe, alongside Canada, alongside Mexico, along all of North America and all of Europe. That is the heartbeat of the global economy. Unless they decide to value the, the U.S. dollar, doesn't really matter what Brazil wants to do. Doesn't really matter what Russia wants to do. Doesn't really matter what China wants to do. Stick with where the money is. Stick with where the power is. I'm not worried about the movement at all. All right. Uh, next question from Alex Andrade. Currently, I think a lot of investors are waiting on the sidelines before the next bull market arrives. How are you feeling about the growth industry as treasuries fall more? Do you like on holding AG? The stock is up 71% year to date. Could have the same growth story as Crocs. Yeah, I mean, I would 100% agree that, that that's exactly where where we are uh, with the current market cycle is that there's a lot of, uh, I mean, just like the housing market, there's a lot of side, actually, this, this is a great analogy, you know, I'm glad that this this person, this uh, questioner brought it up because the housing market is starting to turn around because there was a lot of sideline demand that needed to get energized. And as soon as you got energized by lower rates, a lot of those sidelined buyers came into the market and started juicing the housing market back up, right? That's exactly what the stock market is. There are a lot of sidelined investors right now that are waiting for a Fed pause to re-energize them, for rates to stop going up, to energize them, to re-enter the market, and that's going to juice the stock market. That's exactly a great way to look at the market right now. We are simply, I mean, that's why we're grinding higher and we're not soaring, but we're not crashing. We're grinding higher because some there's a lot of sideline demand and investors are starting to trickle in on the prospects of a Fed pause, the prospects of a Fed pause. Once that Fed pause actually comes, you're going to get a ton of sideline demand that gets re-energized, a huge segment of that population comes back into the market, provides a huge bid for the market, and, and we rally significantly. So grind higher into the pause, soar after. That's the motto. I think it's a great way of looking at it. Second question with respect to uh, ON to ON, I, I like that company. I do think that that is a you know kind of a Lululemon Crocs mix going on right there. Uh, they make really great products. They have really great reviews. They're dominating a niche of the athletic apparel industry that I think is kind of wide open, which is performance athleisure wear. I think that's kind of what they're going for, right? It's it's tennis players. It's runners. It's um, these alternative sport athletes, not not the big sport athletes, you know, basketball, football, soccer, baseball, those are dominated by Nike, Under Armour, Adidas. Lululemon went after the yoga crowd and the like, you know, the free spirit and the athleisure crowd. But there was this real big hole in the athletic apparel market for athletes who aren't major sport athletes, but also aren't this kind of athleisure wave, right? They're the runners, the sprinters, the, the that group needs apparel, the hikers, the bikers. That's where ON On is really coming into the fold. And I think they're dominating that. Their growth profile shows that they're dominating that. Their customer reviews show that their customers love it. The fact that a bunch of products are, or a bunch of customers are repeat buyers that's fantastic news. Net promoter score there is high. I think they make a really great product in an underserved niche of the athletic apparel industry. That to me means the growth that they've experienced over the past decade can continue over the next three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. And that growth to me, that growth profile is undervalued in the current stock price. So I do like tickers ONON. I do like that at around 30 bucks. That's where it was last check. I think that's a good stock to buy and hold, kind of like Crocs, kind of like Lululemon for a two, three year window.
Absolutely. Okay. Uh, we had a few similar questions, uh, basically talking about how plug has taken a major beating recently. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what's going on there? Yeah. So we kind of, um, kind of talked about this last week, right? That the, the hydrogen market is experiencing, uh, delays right now. It's not growing as quickly as expected. Plug power is over promising under delivering. So you kind of put all that together and that's why, Plug Power stock has has taken a beating. And I think the problem with Plug Power, I have ultimate faith in the hydrogen market. I think the hydrogen market is going to be massive in the long term. I think the hydrogen economy is going to be massive in the long term. I think it's the natural gas substitute. Big oil is making that bet. Saudi Arabia is making that bet. So I, I think it's a good bet to be making alongside those, those powers. I have no doubt in that. I think it's going to go through a lot of growing pains between now and hydrogen becoming a ubiquity as ubiquitous as natural gas. You're going to have a lot of stumbles and a lot of road bumps and a lot, just a lot of, a lot of things are going to go wrong. So you have to embrace the volatility in the journey of the hydrogen economy. Number two, plug power specifically needs to stop over promising and under delivering. <laughs> They keep saying big targets, big targets, big targets, and they keep missing those targets over and over and over again. Yet they miss their short-term targets and they reiterate their long-term targets. That's unsustainable. At some point, they got to hit their short-term targets. They just have to. So hydrogen, very bullish long-term. Plug power, still very bullish long-term. But I need this management team to start hitting. It's it's like basically we have a plug power is we have a – uh, do you know Victor Wembanyama? No. <laughs> okay. Victor Wembanyama is a seven foot six uh, European basketball player who is I don't even know he's eighteen years old. I don't know. Really young, hyped up as the next big NBA draft pro, next big thing in the NBA, next LeBron, next Michael Jordan. Right, everybody's salivating over him. What we have right now at Plug Power is Victor Wembanyama. A seven foot six has everything to be a superstar, but isn't, you know, isn't executing right now, isn't doing what he needs to do to realize the, the potential. That doesn't mean he's not going to. I think Victor Wimbanyama is going to be a fantastic long term player and it's going to be the future of the NBA. I, I do believe that, but he needs to put on some weight. He needs to actually make it to the NBA. He needs to actually play some games. He needs to. There's a couple things he needs to do to execute to become the massive star that he can be. That's Plug Power. Plug Power has, you know, on paper, this company looks great, right? I mean, they they have all the investments necessary and have made all the investments necessary to be the backbone of the hydrogen revolution, the foundation of the hydrogen economy. But they're just mis-executing on this little thing here and that little thing here and delay here and delay there and cost cut here and, and you know whatever. So all these things are happening and adding up and they're causing them to miss their short-term targets. I still believe in the prospect that is plug power, but they need to start realizing their potential by executing in the short term. And until that happens, the stock's going to remain under pressure. Absolutely. All right. Uh, next question from Myth Slasher. Sounds like it's too late to get into Symbotic. Thoughts? Well, if, if Walmart's making a play for Symbotic, like I said, <laughs> like I believe, then uh, I don't think it's too late. Um, I do think the, the stock is technically overbought and overextended in the short term. So you're going to want to wait for a pullback to the moving averages, wait for the RSI to become normalized. Don't chase the rally at, at overbought territories. But 
on a next big pullback, I think it's absolutely a buy the dip situation because I think this one continues to push higher and ultimately gets bought out. So too late? No, but don't chase right now. I mean, this thing is massively extended from just its 50-day MA. So wait for it to come back to that and then buy on that dip. I think that's a good entry. All right. Uh, next question from Imran Majid. Any light on Coupang Inc.? Ticker CPNG. Yeah, we, we've looked at Coupang a couple of times. I, I I think it's a fabulous company. I think they've dominated um, that market in the same way that Amazon's dominated U.S. e-commerce. Uh, so I, I think they got the logistics network. Uh, they're unrivaled. And I think that that is a very big competitive advantage in the logistics network. So I think that company has good growth prospects, but the valuation is always held me back there. The valuation doesn't make a ton of sense there for a low margin business. So that's why we haven't brought it up or we haven't been bullish on it. Or we haven't bought the stock in our model portfolios. We just think there are better opportunities in the growth tech sector uh, for a rebound in 2023, 2024 than coupang. All right. And our last question from John Motil. We'd love to hear what you expect from SoFi Q1 announcement coming in May. And if there is any short term opportunity here, when does their recent acquisition start to impact them? Uh, so far, Q1, I mean, I think it's going to be a good Q1. I think that the FDI insurance boost probably juiced some, uh, juiced some member growth. I think that uh, they, you know, the CEO said as much that member growth is going to be, or deposit growth is going to be as strong this quarter as it was last quarter, if not stronger. So I, I think it's going to be a good quarter. I don't play quarter to quarter with, with SoFi, as, as you guys know. That's a long-term investment for me. I think they are creating the future of banking. But I do think that SoFi is, is due for a pretty big quarter of insider buying into the print as well, into the print, meaning over the past few months, as, as close as they can be buying into the print. So I, I like the setup there. The technicals look good. Earnings estimates look good. They're trending in the right direction. Um, I like SoFi stock for, for a Q1 earnings play. Yeah. All right. Well, great analysis for our listeners and HGI investors. As always, Luke, any last words before we wrap? I just noticed I had this, this bracelet on if anybody had a question about it. My daughter made it for me this morning and I had to put it on or else she was going to cry. <laughs> but I kind of like the look of it, so it might become a regular thing. Just FYI. Just wanted to address the bracelet in the room. Not the elephant in the room, the bracelet in the room. Get it? Got it. Good. Okay. That's all. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We'd love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and always to see if we can answer any of your burning questions. As always, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Until then, bye, all.